Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Uh, yeah, so first I should say that anytime I hear the name Blinken, I think of that character from Robin Hood Men in Tights, which is really a problem. Um, just, 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 uh, and I know it makes my editor Jen I'm laugh. Totally about here it, for the uh, gerontocracy too. of Biden, Blinken, and Yellen. It's going to be great. <laughs> it's incredible. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with ProPublica's Dara Lind and Vox's own Alex Ward, uh, who is joining us to talk about the Biden national security team as it is emerging. Late breaking, we have, I guess, a defense secretary pick as of last night. And Biden started with uh, Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, uh, UN Ambassador. Um, so, you know, he's he's put an emphasis on kind of rolling this out. And Alex, you you had a, a kind of take on this that relates to an idea that is called the blob. And so I think a good place to start is like, what what is the blob? What what is that? A very bad movie, but uh, in D.C., uh, and I should say that there will be a piece on this that comes out uh, before this episode, so you can check it out. But either way, uh, The Blob was a name that Ben Rhodes, who's a very prominent Obama foreign policy aide, gave to the foreign policy establishment in D.C. His basic argument was the U.S. leaders and centrist Democrats and Republicans effectively followed the same grand strategy since 1945 after World War II, in which... The United States believes in free trade and promoting human rights and democracy and a strong military and all this stuff. And of course, made multiple mistakes along the way, multiple caveats to that. Um, and I should also note the blob includes the plethora of experts and whoever that are think tanks and even foreign officials who try to influence the way U.S. foreign policy is run. And his major claim was that, look, these guys are leading us to ruin and that Obama was trying to change the way foreign policy was conducted. Um, in fact, Obama saw him, Obama and his team saw themselves as insurgents against this so-called blob, sort of the anti-expert professional class. And then Trump basically ran on anti-expertise in all aspects. And so that was anti-blob. And I guess my sort of take here is that after roughly 10 years of having presidents, you know, stiff arm this uh, this foreign policy elite establishment, Biden has welcomed them back with open arms into his inner circle. Tony Blinken, his long-term advisor, Secretary of State, Jake Sullivan, uh, also a long-term advisor and sort of Hillary Clinton protege, National Security Advisor, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, former four-star general. And then we go on and on and on. Um, Director of National Intelligence, who will oversee all 17 intelligence agencies, 
helped redact the Senate Intelligence Torture Report and was a big proponent of drone warfare. So it's almost their last shot, in a sense, to show that we're not the blah, we're the right stewards of American foreign policy, despite all this criticism. And there's always a lot of pushback against that um, among progressives, particularly. But so I want to I want to sharpen Rhodes's blob point a little bit, because it, it was a little weird, because part of what made his critique of the blob strange is that the blob ran through the Obama administration. Right. Like Rhodes was expressing not a contrast between the Obama team and its opponents, but a contrast between himself personally and his allies like like Dennis McDonough. And I think he would want you to believe Barack Obama himself and other people who served in the Obama administration. So it's a it's a fine grained distinction because Tony Blinken, Avril Haines, th- these people you're you're referring to, they had high level roles under under Obama. But the the idea was that Obama had sort of he had opposed the Iraq war. Right. And that was an important reason that he rose to prominence originally. And there was a smallish group of people who rallied to Obama's standard early. Right. And then there was this much bigger group that sort of wound up populating his administration. And there was always some tension between the like OG Obama people and the sort of broader uh, Democratic Party, like national security apparatus. And they particularly disagreed about Iran, that a lot of Rhodes's critique and Obama's critique by the end of the national security think tank world is that they were operating on behalf of foreign governments, essentially. Um, I think I think Rhodes referred to uh, Massachusetts Avenue as Arab-occupied territory uh, at one point, which is a mean-spirited way of putting it, um, but not untrue that Gulf monarchies, part of their foreign policy strategy was to subsidize foreign policy work in the United States. Something I found hosting the weeds uh, a while ago is like, I was like, I want to get some experts on Central America on the show. And I like went to the main think tank websites and like there weren't any. I mean, I don't want to say there like literally isn't any Central America expert, but it's just a big difference between the number of people doing Middle East stuff and people doing Latin America stuff has to do with like what there's funding for. Obviously, the United States is is much, much closer to El Salvador than to the United Arab Emirates. Uh, But there's much more like wonk interest in in the Persian Gulf because that's what there's financial support for. And now we're looking at the sort of collapse of that strain of Obama administration thinking in favor of what was just like the other half of the administration. Right. I mean, what makes this a little tricky and like, you know, the the Central America versus the Middle East thing is particularly, I think, illustrative here is like, as Alex said initially, we're when we're talking about the blob, we're talking about both the people who are responsible for making U.S. foreign policy and the ideas that are guiding U.S. foreign policy. And like, obviously, especially when we're talking about foreign policy personnel, 
you have to root those ideas through people. You don't just get to like come into office and say this is, you know, instead of nominating a secretary of state, you like nominate a grand strategy and then everybody who you appoint has to follow that to the T. But in addition to the argument of here are the people, here is the money that is going into making foreign policy in DC and the people who are on the receiving end of that, there's also this kind of like 1945 grand strategy. Uh, you know, this the the ideas that these people are promoting have such a stranglehold on what acceptable priorities are that, like, of course, you're going to be spending more effort on the Middle East than on Central America on a risk board or like in in Twilight Struggle. The Middle East is a much more important region of the world than Central and South America are like this idea of what is important and what the big what what the big regional battlegrounds are and who the powers, you know, who the relevant stakeholders are in those battlegrounds is something that you can under you can see a world where that's a little bit more responsive to like post 1991 changes than the kind than the foreign policy consensus has has grown to understand but like the problem with rooting ideas through people is you can't really tell if the selection is happening because the Biden incoming administration wants to promote a certain idea of America's role in the world or whether it's happening because these are the individual people that they trust in any given circumstance and that is something that we've seen a little bit of you know the the way in which these cabinet selections are happening with a lot of lobbying in in the defense case against the presumptive secretary of defense pick Michelle Flournoy and now the selection of somebody who like was of of you know Lloyd Austin who wasn't really on the who wasn't seen as a strong contender for the spot on election day does make it seem a little bit like what's happening is in fact the selection of particular people driven by commitments that Biden has to various constituencies in his party. There was a lot of progressive argument against Flournoy because of her work as a consultant and the you know clients that she had there, and partly to the commitment that Biden, the Biden campaign made to having the most diverse cabinet in history, which, as we've seen in the weeks after the election, appears to be in tension with the kind of natural Biden world picks who would have by default, been a lot of white people. And now there there appears to be a little post facto scrambling to make that promise a reality. Well, let's let's start at the State Department, because I think that's where that really comes together, because uh, Blinken, Tony Blinken, going to be secretary of state. um, He was a deputy secretary of state, right, at, at the end of the Obama administration. But he got to be deputy secretary of state by being like like a Joe Biden guy. Right. Like they they have a very like. So who who is he? What's the what's what's the Blinken story? So Tony Blinken has been with Biden really since 2002, perhaps a little earlier. But anyway, he was you know staff director on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when Biden was the chair. Biden comes in to the White House. He is a, a national security advisor to Biden, also becomes an advisor to Obama. 
and then in sort of that second term heads over to the State Department to be the Deputy Secretary of State, uh, where he learns a lot more about the building. That number two of the State Department is really more of like an internal role. Um, obviously, it still has a very big external role. It is the State Department after all. But uh, that person is kind of like the manager of the building. Um, and so learned a lot about it, it, its internal dynamics. Uh, look, he in, in terms of who he is, he is long seen as sort of this worldly guy. You know, he grew up in Paris for a little bit. Um, and, you know, he's a kind of a centrist person, not very ideological, um, as centrists tend to not be. Um, however, what worries some people, and I'm saying the centrist thing facetiously because I see Dara's face. Um, yes, thank you. But, I mean, podcasting is an extremely visual medium. Yes, it is. <laughs> hence, hence the description. But yeah, the, the worry with with Blinken and is like... He and Biden have a pretty big mind meld. And so there's two concerns. Um, one is that there won't be a lot of pushback to the sort of general options and ideas, right? There might be a lot of groupthink, and this will come up again, as we mentioned, other people that are in the cabinet. And then the other worry um, is where actually like Biden and Blinken really diverge on only one area, and that is intervention. Biden is more on the restraint side in general, although he kind of goes with the flow with the de democratic foreign policy views of the day. Um, today, it is more restrainy. And so he's more restrainy. But he did show a lot of those um, inclinations during the Obama administration, whereas Blinken, for example, was for intervention in Libya and he was for intervention in Syria. And today, Blinken is saying we should have done more in Syria. We actually failed. We could have gone in a little sooner. We could have um, done a bit more to help the civilian situation. And Part of that is, you know, he's got a, a familial history with the Holocaust. And he, from what people say about him, they he is always thinking about, you know, the human effects of wars and 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 the, the atrocities that happen. And so as things happen throughout the world, he has at least that lens in his mind. It does not mean it dominates how he views the world, but it is part of him. Um, and so this is the concern. But so I want to sort of, to an extent, like put a pin in Blinken's substantive views and just note that he's set up to potentially be one of the most influential secretaries of state that we've had in a long time, because often what you get at secretary of state is something like the Hillary Clinton or Colin Powell role, where the person is selected because it's a prestige cabinet job. And you sort of like want that person's luster on your team. But then that means it's not necessarily somebody who's influential to you personally or to who external stakeholders see as reflecting your views. And so in Blinken, you have a situation where the Secretary of State will be genuinely a close advisor to Joe Biden, somebody who knows Biden very well and who Biden for decades has like talked to about foreign policy issues. But then also, because he was Deputy Secretary of State, he actually has much more experience with the State Department as an institution than Kerry or Mike Pompeo or, you know, any of our recent secretaries of, of state. So you sort of see why he makes a compelling choice, right? Like if, if you are Joe Biden and you like have known Tony Blinken and liked him for a long time, you have the opportunity to put a well-qualified person who's also like a buddy of yours into this prestige job, right? There had been a lot of discussion. I was talking uh, to a, a, a source on the transition before the election, and she not a foreign policy person at all. Um, but she was saying to me, look, um, 
Biden's going to want to give the job to Tony Blinken, but we're going to walk him through how if it goes to Susan Rice, then everything is good. But if it goes to Tony Blinken, then there are all these terrible downstream consequences as he tries to make um, diversity stuff work. Then it wound up being the case. I, I think the election outcome just meant that Rice would have been unconfirmable. Um, so that obviously tilts the balance. But so much of what we've seen elsewhere in the cabinet flows downstream from the fact that they had sort of penciled in an African-American woman for the most prestigious job in the cabinet, but it wound up going to a white man, which really changes the math on everything else. Because um, Rice and then Janet Yellen at Treasury and Michelle Flournoy at Defense that would have been like the most diverse cabinet ever. Whereas Blinken, Yellen, Flournoy would be an all-white cabinet, right? And it's just the switch of one person. Uh, but that that sort of pushes, pushes down and is clearly one of the primary reasons that, that Lloyd Austin got into contention at defense. I mean, he's a four-star general. He's, you know, has a good reputation, but he was not like on the agenda prior to the election, but there came to be a premium on finding African-American candidates for different sort of jobs. And that created, there was there was a lot of criticism. People were not all thrilled with the idea of Michelle Flournoy at defense, but she had this air of inevitability about her that sort of went away. Um, so who's, who is she and who is Austin? So Michelle Flournoy... Uh... Long-time defense official, you know, she was the number three most important person at the Pentagon under Obama, the policy planner, uh, the, the undersecretary of defense for policy, the person who was really in charge of making sure that the department and the military had the right resources and ideas in place as they went about doing their thing around the world. Then she left. Uh, she founded a think tank, which uh, not. She's also founded. I should say she's also founded a think tank called the Center uh, for New American Security, which is a pretty establishment, left-leaning um, national security think tank. Also, uh, a consulting group called West Exec Advisors, uh, which, by the way, co-founder of that group, uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, um, and with the client base that they're trying to uh, reveal at the moment. Um, the concerns with her outside of the contracting and all that. Um, she was a decent proponent of the war in Afghanistan and the surge, and that rankled a lot of progressives. Um, Hawk-ish, uh, and I'm really distinguishing Hawk-ish on China, felt that the, the U.S. did need to sort of confront the Chinese threat, but do so with technological superiority and a whole bunch of other issues. And she was pretty conventional. And, and there was a concern that she was you know, going to be more interventionist on, on other issues. Um, whereas Lloyd Austin, um, the, the thing that we know about him is, you know, uh, an inspiration to a lot of, um, you know, uh, black non-commissioned uh, troops. Uh, you know, that's a, a roughly like f roughly 50 percent, a little bit less, but roughly 50 percent of those that are enlisted are people of color. And, you know, there's but it's not the case in the officer corps. And so the fact that he, you know, went to West Point in 1971, he's the only one to rise with four stars. Um, in from that class and, you know, is a black man is a pretty inspirational story um, and became the first black man to also lead Central Command, uh, where most of our wars are fought and is sort of seen as the most prestigious military organization. However, the knock on him is that he's not doesn't really have any opinions on things that, in fact, he's kind of a pushover. Um, like I went looking for and I was talking to people last night 
you know, I was looking for what are his views? What are the things that he believes? And they all point me to like this one interview that he's sort of given. He's very camera shy. He's sort of known as the invisible general. He just does not like talking about his thoughts or being in front of press, which is just not a good trait if you're sec def. And like, he's got very conventional views in the sense of like, oh yeah, China and Russia are a threat and whatever. And he mostly believes that in the Middle East, you know, ISIS is bad and, you know, we got to have the politics of Iraq right to make sure ISIS 2.0 doesn't come back. Um, but the sort of the main grace I should, to finish on him, and I think where the main distinguishing factor with Flournoy is, is that the belief, and this is the main theory, Flournoy would have been an activist for her views and Austin won't be. Um, Austin has many times like said, I want more troops in Iraq and then the, and the Obama administration and the Obama administration said no. And he was like, OK, we'll, we'll withdraw troops. Um Whereas Biden remembers being uh, watching Obama get boxed in by the Pentagon when he didn't want to send a lot of troops to Afghanistan. Um, so I, and then I he ended up doing is, so. I think this is a super important point because I have been needling political science Twitter uh, for the past 12 hours about there's this theoretical concern that it's bad to have a recently retired general uh, as secretary of defense. And the official reason that most of the skeptics give is that they don't want a secretary of defense who in effect colludes with top military brass to box the president in. Uh, that's totally reasonable thing to worry about in life. It, it happens. Uh, but I think it's important to note that when you look at specific individuals, right, like th the actual idea here is that Austin, like both Austin and Flournoy are known to Biden. Like he's not a stranger to this world or to either of these people. And the assessment is that in the real world, Austin is more likely to take orders from the White House than Flournoy is. I mean, you could also see that as a downside, but I mean, it's just that like w what the actual policy debate is here is the opposite of the kind of like completely abstract version of. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I'm happy to let Derek go in for a moment, but I just I do want to come back to the, to the civilian control thing, because I do think you can have both. You can believe both those things. No, I, I think you should totally talk about the civmil thing, because that appears to be because I mean, the, the a lot of the question here is. When is selection of cabinet appointees about external facing concerns and when is it about the voices in the room? So yeah, I look, I think you can believe that Austin is more malleable than Flournoy. I think and I think that's part that's like case A for his selection. On the civilian bit, uh, whether or not you agree with it, there is a genuine case for it. Um, so first of all, based on a law, um, right, we can't have civilian control. Uh, we, sorry, we can't have someone who retired from the military within first it was within 10 years. Now it's seven years in charge. It's only been waived twice. For, and they're supposed to be in exceptional cases like Marshall and then Mattis. Um, the fact that the last waiver was four years ago causes a bit of a problem. Um, but here's sort of the, the, the main reasons that at least, you know, when I poll civilian military leaders, um, here's what they tell me. And again, take it or leave it. But first is that having someone who was recently in uniform effectively weakens civilian control, right? I mean, Congress created uh, the Secretary of Defense position to have civilian oversight and to have the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, the top military advisor to provide military advice. That is sort of a clear distinction. And if you put someone who was recently in uniform at top, that somewhat blurs those lines. Um, to 
being a four-star general is in and of itself somewhat political, right? You don't get there without having a bit of political ability, but it is still different than being a civilian politician and learning the policymaking skills that are required for that job. Being a secretary of defense is really about like values and policy choices. And a lot of four-star generals haven't really dealt with that throughout their decades-long career. There's also parochial biases and a closeness with serving with officers, right? And at this, in a time like this, when there's such divisions between the civilian and military world, particularly in the Pentagon, no one wants it to, to look like you know, the person at the top might side with one side or the other. And then the last one is is politicization, right? The military is supposed to be apolitical completely. No one wants it to look like the U.S. military is on one side or another. And when you have, for example, like even at the DNC and RNC, where there was tons of images of like troops support us and whatever, there's this view of like, oh, the military is on our side or, or, or not. And of course, people in the military have their own political views. That is very clear. And they try to skew when 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 they can. Um, but in the grand scheme, you try not to make that happen. So um, again, you can buy it or not, but that's the, the I find a decent persuasive argument for why this kind of nomination is, is not sound. I, I think the, the last point, right, on the politicization of of the military is by far the most persuasive one. What's interesting to me about that is that the thing that really did that to me was not Trump making Mattis secretary of defense, but it was the elevation of other generals to other situations. Like John Kelly wound up not succeeding really as chief of staff, but it was like putting a former general in at Homeland Security, which was then at the center of so many political controversies, and then him becoming chief of staff, right? Like that, you know, like really dragged like military stuff into the the heart of partisan politics, complete with like there was these like weird like Kelly was mad at Obama because of like something that happened at some dinner, right? Like Dare, do you remember, what, what was that about? I genuinely do not even remember this. It, no. I mean, it seemed like it was personal, right? Like, not... Right, I mean, yeah, no, but I, but I also think that having, and this is something that we kind of saw in some of the contemporaneous, you know, postmortems of the Trump administration as it was developing, that, like, having a critical mass of former generals in the top levels of the Trump administration led to them trying to create their own kind of counter power base, which was seen as the adults in the room because that's how they wanted to present themselves. And also because in a cabinet full of outsiders, they were actually less outsidery to the political process than some of the other people, but was also characterized by a certain contempt for civilian national politics. And that's what really struck me from the Kelly era is his ability to turn his his military career into the idea that any criticism he made of an elected politician was valid because it was coming from a place of great sacrifice and that like he shouldn't have to deal with this crap. And that I think is the relevant concern about Civ Mill stuff in an environment where nobody else knows the playing field. That is not at all the concern here because you have, as Alex was saying earlier, a secretary of state who knows Foggy Bottom super well, who's like who knows how to work that side of the machinery. You have a bunch of people who have already been in the federal policymaking process and who know how to pull the levers. And conversely, I think there's a strong argument that if you're already a media shy person, and you're being put into a position that you know is 
uh, is being scrutinized for not for you're not trying to assert yourself as a representative of the military, that that is likely to make Austin a less assertive secretary of defense than he might have been on the margin because he's concerned about the civilian military stuff. And that kind of brings us back to the idea of like, what is the purpose of selecting Lloyd Austin? Is it a question of external facing diversity or is it the kind of external ideological pressure that existed on Flournoy that didn't exist for Austin? Or is it the idea that Team Biden has a like has a vision in mind and want doesn't particularly want other people with strong independent views of how the world should work? Like the pattern that we're seeing from that stretches back to the Veep stakes that includes the the kind of Flournoy like pre-mortems and that it, we've also seen to a lesser extent at Interior where it seems like the Biden administration is less enthusiastic about Deb Holland, who's been getting a lot of grassroots enthusiasm, but does like the idea of a first native secretary of the Interior. So they're trying to pivot that enthusiasm from her as a particular candidate to like the general idea is that we're seeing a pattern of there is an obvious there is an obvious name being floated for a position that name gets criticized by anonymous Biden world sources other people get put forward who were not previously in the conversation and who may not check the like who may not have the amassed obvious qualifications and you know, in the Harris example, that didn't end up working. In the Flournoy example, it did. And it does strike me as relevant that these are, in all three cases, women who are being undermined by by anonymous sources, you know, who appear to be longtime Biden world aides. I think with that, let, let's take a break and then let's pivot closer to the White House. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. 
you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know, I think part of what Dara is saying there, right, is to, to an unusual extent, Biden is stocking a cabinet with like people Biden knows and people Biden has worked with closely. Which I think, you know, going back to what Alex said, like, yes, this is the first time in 10 years that we've had a non-insurgent foreign policy nomination team. But it's also the first time in 10 years that we've had an incoming president who actually has spent enough time in Washington to have a critical mass of people he's been working with. Right. I mean, you could stuff. There's like 3000 political appointments in the executive branch, which like when Obama had to fill them, you know, was like, OK, that's going to be like a, a lot of people he's never met. Um but B- Biden, in theory, could stock the entire government with like people he he knows quite well. Um, right. There's but, like this kind but, of weird criticism that's getting floated anonymously in some of the D.C. press of like people who were on the Biden campaign for a long time who are mad that people they see as less early like adopters of the campaign are getting these nominations before them. And it's like, in no case is this someone with whom Biden had a crappy relationship previously. It's just a question of do you earn loyalty points for having joined the campaign early as opposed to being somebody who is who has been in the democratic policy apparatus well so so let's talk about i guess a typical arrangement is that the national security advisor is like somebody who is is close to the to the president um i think there was a lot of early thinking that that blinken would be national security advisor Uh, but instead it's going to be jake sullivan um who um who 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 is Jake Sullivan? He he's sort of broken out of the national security world over the past few years, but now is going going back to his roots. Yeah, uh, Jake is sort of this you know Minnesotan wunderkind in many people's minds. Um, right, he's a relatively young guy in his forties. Um, was policy planning director at the State Department. Was an advisor to Biden in the White House. Was a major player in Hillary Clinton. Uh, major player in Hillary Clinton's campaign on foreign policy. And was sort of seen as like the next generation or in effect sort of the bridge between this Democratic team um, of foreign policy thinkers and sort of the next uh, squad coming through. Uh, But it didn't seem likely he was going to get national security advisor for the reason that uh, Blinken was going to get the job. And then and on top of that, Sullivan roughly for the past four years has been focusing a lot more, not not completely, but a lot more on domestic issues, Um, though in the foreign policy world, he has been doing a lot of work on, well, how could we actually leave the diplomacy in the Middle East? How could we still counter Iran, but in a less antagonistic way? Uh, how can the U.S. make foreign policy decisions with the middle class at it, thinking about the middle class at its center? You can roll eyes at that if you'd like. Um, I know some people do. Um, but um, what I, people I've talked to about Jake is that he's very, you know, he's a kind guy. I've, I've talked to him on occasion. He's a kind guy, smart guy, respected by a lot of people, elders and youngers. Um, and what's interesting about him is that People, especially progressives, see him as someone who is at least sympathetic to their cause, right? 
um, while Biden's team is, um, if you don't want to accept return of the blob, maybe accept a team of friends. Um, <laughs> Sel- uh, Sullivan is definitely among the friends. He's in that friend, the Biden friend zone, I guess. Um, but uh, he's someone who's at least willing to extend a hand outward or leftward, particularly, um, and did seem to also learn a lesson from the Trump years that there is a concern with that. So when you speak in that general D.C. foreign policy elite of like liberal international order and deterrence and reassurance and, um, you know, credibility and all these sort of nebulous terms that we that they throw out. He is willing to go, well, look like, OK, so we make X decision. But what does that mean for people in Colorado? What does that mean for people in Iowa? Um, and when we whether it's free trade or whether it's a, a military purchase. So. The fact that he'll oversee from the White House, you know, the all of the national security apparatus um, is actually encouraging to a lot of people. But as we noted earlier, while Sullivan has a lot of influence, of course, literally being in Biden's ear every day, the person who probably will have the most influence is the guy at Foggy Bottom. And right. And so it's there's a little bit of an inversion of the the pattern that that has existed in in some of recent presidencies. So. Sullivan's career is interesting. I mean, he he worked for Clinton at the State Department, um, starting as he's a pretty young guy. So he was very young uh, back then. And I didn't know him at all. I never spoke to him uh, during those Clinton years. And then he continued to work in foreign policy under Obama. Um, And then he was the policy director of Clinton's campaign in 2016 not just foreign policy stuff, which is an unusual trajectory, right? Normally, in a campaign, foreign policy stuff, foreign policy is never that important to presidential campaigns. How dare you? So, yeah. <laughs> no, but like, it's a cliche, How dare right? you? So you don't normally, no policy director can be an expert in everything, but it's like, it's very eccentric. There is a certain DC career path that creates a certain amount of fungibility among areas of domestic policy, where like so that somebody who has the requisite level of experience in domestic policy knows a lot of the issues that a presidential campaign will be taking on, whereas that is not the case with foreign policy necessarily. And then he wound up. Then Clinton lost, and so he, you know, I don't know. Like a lot of people who are involved in the Clinton campaign spent a lot of time thinking that over, (laughs) and what. And wound up playing a comparable role for Biden. So now he comes in as national security advisor. Like he was, he was, when he was Clinton's policy director, you would say he had way more foreign policy experience than somebody normally in that role. Now as national security advisor, he has way more domestic political experience than a typical national security advisor. Like he has been in a bajillion meetings with people just like democrat people and like annoying groups and people who are worried about polls and people who are worried about winning elections in wisconsin uh which is just like not the normal background for a national security advisor like i don't think you know whether you talk about like jim jones or susan rice or condy rice like i like none of them were in those kind of discussions like well the steel workers won't like it if we come out for a fracking ban like it's a different kind of thing. I should say, though, very briefly, that part of the reason I think Sullivan got the job is is three reasons. One, very close to Biden. We knew that. Two, 
it's a signal that when foreign policy decisions are made, the domestic policy concerns are also considered, which is something Biden has wanted to to sort of portray, right? And then um, three, he's just sort of not seen as hawkish. He's seen as a bit more progressive. And so uh, the fact that he has these relationships and all that, and he's sitting in the White House, he also is a bit of a, of a symbol to folks that like, this is beyond the normal national security advisor. And sorry, I should mention a fourth, which is he does have political experience. And that actually matters if you think about like, um, you know, Barnes Scowcroft, for example, he was pretty bad at getting his presidents reelected. Um, <laughs> it, or, or like Kissinger didn't do too great keeping his his boss in line. So, um, you know, there was tons of derision of like Tom Donilon and, and others in the Obama administration. But yet because they were like, oh, they're political hacks who were just sort of dallying in foreign policy. Well, they helped their boss get reelected. And so the fact that Jake can sort of is sort of the center point of all of these different considerations. It makes sense that he'd be there. And also, and he, I'm sure he's thinking about this. This is totally an audition for secretary of state down the line. I want to highlight what you're talking about, about him not being seen as a hawk, because the other thing, the other relevant characteristic of Joe Biden as a politician that I see really shaping these cabinet picks so far, in addition to like, he's been there a long time, he has people he trusts, he wants the people he's trusted to be close to him, is that he is good at constituency management, right? And so it's been very, it's actually been fairly surprising, given the tone of left criticism of the Biden campaign, that there has not been that like the people he's actually chosen for cabinet positions have not received the level of criticism that one might have expected when a moderate Democrat, you know, from a moderate Democrat from his campaign, or for that matter, like, a lot of the real criticism has been saved for people who either haven't ultimately been nominated, or has just been more vociferous than after people are nominated, presumably because signals are being sent through back channels that like, it's really, you know, you'll get yours next time. And if you think about the diversity concern from a constituency management perspective, the people who are asking the, the loudest voices for more diversity in the cabinet picks aren't the people who were leading the kind of reckoning around the denial of opportunities to black Americans in the middle of 2020. They're like the Congressional Black Caucus and other incumbent politician insider groups who are seeing diversity as a matter of representation, not as a matter of we need to get different kinds of voices with different kinds of experiences in the room. And so that to me does a lot to explain the you know, the Sullivan and Austin selections in particular, like Jake Sullivan is serving a is ser is serving a role that they can point to when looking at progressive groups who would otherwise be more antagonistic toward the Biden administration. Lloyd Austin, on the other hand, is serving the role of being able to like point to go back to Jim Clyburn and say, we are listening to you. We are taking you seriously. Uh, you you know, you felt so strongly about this that you felt the need to publicly pressure us, which is not something you as a longtime elected official are generally going to do. And, you know, we are we see you as a valuable enough member of our coalition to take those concerns seriously. But you see how just sort of like wrap on that note, right? There's this tension between a Democratic Party that is increasingly invested in the importance of of descriptive representation and, and diversity and the question of like, do you elevate leaders who make that real, right? So like Kamala Harris's inner circle of people just like involves a very large quantity of Black women, 
like authentically, right? And if anything, she would probably have to like studiously diversify her team away from that. Um, whereas Biden's like a 78 year old white guy, you know, and he's breaking. Like, <laughs> no, but he's like, he, he's cast in this role, right? In which like he needs to assemble a team that is not that. While simultaneously projecting an air of renewed, you know, experience and competence in the federal government, which limits the pool of people you can be dealing with to people who were selected during an era where diversity was not a chief concern. Right. Right. Exactly. That because like one thing you could do is say, like, fuck the pipeline. I'm leapfrogging. That was to an extent Trump's cabinet, right? Was like a bunch of people who it was a little like, really, that guy? But like, that's not Biden's temperament. And there's also, we didn't even get to this, but like, there's a bunch of people like other guys, just like Biden folks kicking around the White House in sort of nondescript portfolios, uh, plus John Kerry. Oh, right. John Kerry. (laughs) Who knows what as like a like a climate emissary um, and so a cabinet it, position like climate secretary of the climate cabinet position. And now he's going to serve under Blinken at the State Department, but also have a White House office. I'm so confused by this. Um, that seems like an awful lot of real estate. I, I don't know. Maybe this is just me being like, it's very weird to be talking about office space as a thing that is going to exist in the near future. <laughs> That's true. Right. I'll just say that the only thing that other bothers me about Kerry is like he has the Rolodex and foreign leaders have his number. Um, if they don't get like something done with Blinken, let's say Blinken, you know, stands them off. They're going to call Kerry and they're going to try to work like he's so I, I it's actually I get the notion of having like a top negotiator as sort of the climate secretary. But uh, you're causing a big problem. And I'm sure Blinken is not 100 percent thrilled with us. Well, and what I was going to say is that just like early speculation about presidential personnel is always you you should discount it like 30 percent because there's just always the question of like, how does this work in practice? Right. There's like a big question mark as to like, like, what's John Kerry going to do? And like one thing he might do is quit in frustration after eight months. Right? <laughs> uh, oh, I, I disagree. I mean, probably not. I, I, I just mean you don't know, right? Because there's no, there's no such thing. There's no job title that says like, well, the president takes this person's advice seriously, or members of Congress see this guy as credible, right? But that's really important, right? As an administration shakes out, like who do foreign leaders think speaks for the president? Who can make a deal? that sticks? Who has clout on Capitol Hill? Who can negotiate with Republicans? Who gets invited to the important meetings? And like, we just don't know. Like, you have to, you have to see how it, how it plays out. Um, So, okay, let's take a break. Let's talk about a white paper. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent... 
You want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This week's white paper is called The Long-Run Effects of the 1930s HOLC Redlining Maps on Place-Based Measures of Economic Opportunity and Socioeconomic Success. Uh, it is the product of five different authors, uh, but published under the auspices of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. And it uses the it, it uses a set of data sets that, that kind of span a very long period of time um, to talk about the effects of what we now kind of know as the redlining maps, the government-developed maps assessing the creditworthiness of various neighborhoods that ended up, or that ended up, that that treated uh, how, how many non-white and specifically Black people were in a neighborhood as an indicator of low neighborhood value and low creditworthiness. Uh, it looks at the effects of those maps on, vi- on outcomes for people who were born 40 plus years after that. It uses an op- a, a data set known as the Opportunity Atlas developed by Raj Chetty and a bunch of other folks um, that looks at outcomes for people who were born in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and shows that there is a substantial correlation between whether your neighborhood was considered you know, second or third tier or third versus fourth tier valuable on those redlining maps and how your how the people who were born, you know, a generation or two after that in those places ended up having, you know, what what their life outcomes ended up being, their income, the likelihood that they were incarcerated, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a fairly and this is and I apologize to the both the authors and listeners for this because this is methodologically right on that line of it's explained clearly enough in the paper that I think I get it, but I but not so succinctly that I can easily represent it to you guys. It's some, it's some really innovative stuff, kind of putting an ar- putting some arbitrary lines on a map and assessing what the difference between those arbitrary lines and the lines that were actually drawn historically looks like in order to assess, okay, how much of what we're seeing here is the product of where things were already trending in the early 1930s versus the effect that this policy intervention had. Uh, But it is a pretty persuasive case that, you know, even through what we think of as massive transformations in the urban landscape with, you know, the decline of explicit redlining, white flight, urban disinvestment, that the 
active government decisions of the 1930s really did play a big role either in kicking a lot of that process off or at least in reifying, you know, a point in time in the 1930s that was super not great on black white inequality and you know prevent and and providing a drag on any subsequent efforts to ameliorate that so i can't really speak to the this domestic issue because i'm just it's just something i don't cover or think about however it made me think about um a book called why nations fail um and that book is um it's a great it's a big thick book but you should read it because it gives you tons of great anecdotes for cocktail parties when we whenever we can have those again um but uh the reason to read this book is it makes pretty clear that you know there's always been this thought in, in international relations of like the climate of where you are matters and you know population density and all these things are the most important factors in terms of your country's ability to to grow and and for you individually to be economically successful but what it shows is like, no, it's actually just the way like governments do their thing um, using examples like look at North and South Korea. Right. Pretty similar climates right in the same area. Very different economic prospects. Um, look at El Paso, Texas and, and Juarez, Mexico. Right. Literally next to each other. Very different economic opportunities and, and situations. So um, as I read this paper, I was thinking it's it goes back to it's not just like, you know, how much can you grow out of the ground and what are the businesses there and all that? It really it comes down to policies made at the governmental level, you know, federal and, and lower that impact your economic well-being. Um, and so if that works clearly at the um, global level, it, per this paper, it also seems to be working quite literally at the street level. So, you know, the one thing this made me think of is I, I've been talking to a historian who works on sort of housing issues. And he was expressing some frustration with the way that um, the sort of the the HOLC maps work as this neat instrument, right? So you can sort of test them. Um, and but it's gone from being this like thing of about American history that nobody knew about to this thing that's become incredibly widely discussed thanks to Ta-Nehisi Coates, but also a lot of academic economists kind of utilizing this, this HOLC instrument. And he was saying to me that what, what we need a little bit more inquiry on is like, did these maps just track residential segregation patterns and the segregation patterns have this long-term influence, or is it actually the case that the HOLC maps are having a long-term causal impact? Uh, because those are different things for policy design. Um, it seems a little, you could leap to the conclusion that like actually this one federal program about housing loans had these incredibly long-term uh, consequences, or it could be that this was not that big of a deal policy-wise, but happens to have given us a very detailed set of maps about segregation. Um, we like to talk about uh, census papers, right? Um, and so we haven't yet had uh, the release of the 1940 census public data. Um, but so a, a different set of, of researchers, including the, the authors of the... Um, distinctive names paper that we talked about a couple weeks ago, they have a method to track block level segregation based on census data, right? So when the 1940 census comes out, they'll be able to do that for this time period. And then 
you can you can run it both ways, right? Like you can see if there's a mathematical construct that is more or less predictive than the HOLC maps themselves. And then it can tell us more, like did FDR give us a set of interesting maps about segregation or did he like cause this inequity? Because um, those are really different stories about America. Yeah, but that's also, you know, a lot of what this paper is trying to do is to answer that question. And heaven help me, I'm going to have to get into methodology here. But, you know, one of the instruments they use is they do this, you know, this grid overlay. Look at the do the pretend that those grids were the same things as as the lines drawn in in redlining and kind of measure like, you know, find segments that act as that have the same that have the same characteristics between sides of that line prior to the drawing of that map that the actual map lines did and say okay so given that we can roughly say that this line looks like segregation as it existed at the moment this lap this map was drawn do we then see a bigger do we then see the same kind of divergence between sides of this line that that could have been a red line versus this line that actually was and they do find that there's you know that there is a substantial difference there the other thing that they do is you know if you think about the way that um kind of spatially drawing neighborhoods works you will often find yourself with you know there are it's obvious that there are like three sides of you know a of a, a an area but like it's not really clear on the fourth side when that shades into a different neighborhood so they find these particularly arbitrary looking in terms of what the difference in characteristics was on either side of the line uh lines on the redlining maps and they then and they do show that like there is a difference in how those sides work after the line is drawn so there you know i i would love to see how your you know housing historian uh friend would would react to that because it does seem like this is an effort to start to deal with that problem that like, and they're the authors of this paper don't say this is a definitive intervention on the side of yes, redlining caused all of these problems. But when I was saying kind of like reifying in a certain point in time, I, I think that that is kind of the implication of uh, where the authors end up is that yes, there were existing patterns of segregation that, you know, that resulted in unequal opportunity, even, you know, in 1930 for a map, but a map drawn in 1933, like determined the outcomes in the subsequent decades, determined the possible outcomes in the subsequent decades, even in cases where those trends weren't as obvious in 1933. Also, just a small point on this that I think people may not know is that if you go back to the, the bad old days, right, of, of, segregation um the supreme court in a in a ruling in i forget if it was in the teens or or the 20s uh but like before what you think of as the civil rights movement ruled that explicit racial zoning was unconstitutional like at a time when you could have segregated schools segregated water fountains segregated buses etc cetera, etc cetera, there was this kind of land use I mean, of course, today you would say, well, of course you can't do that. But like at a time when you could do tons and tons of stuff that would be unconstitutional today, you couldn't have explicit uh, racial racial zoning rules. So the the plausibility of this program being significant is sort of elevated uh, because the, the, the housing was like a state of exception 
to Jim Crow in an odd way um, until mortgage lending came into the picture. Yeah, or or you could argue that it ended up being a forerunner of what we saw in the post-Jim Crow era, where you have to find increasingly indirect ways to talk about Black people. Um, well, yes. I mean, yes. I mean, there's a, there's a great paper called The Racial Origins of Zoning, and it, it goes into this, that it's like you, cities would actually hire consultants who would help them draw up facially race-neutral zoning rules that would promote segregation. Uh, but the point just being that, like, courts... Right now, land use is one of the lowest levels of scrutiny of anything, according to the judicial system. But like a hundred years ago, it was the opposite. There is one question that I wanted to ask you, Matt, uh, about a point that I think shouldn't go unmentioned in this paper, uh, which, you know, also which confirms what previous economists have also found, which is that the biggest difference isn't between the neighborhoods that were, quote unquote, redlined or like given the lowest rating and the next step up, but the difference between that next step up and the step up after that, right? Or like what you might call yellow lining because the C grade neighborhoods were designated yellow while the D grade neighborhoods were designated red. And, you know, they the authors don't go into a whole lot of detail on, on you know, any speculation as to why that might be the case or for that matter, what really went into uh, determining something at a B level versus a C level. But do you have any thoughts, Matt, as someone who's like much more versed in this than I am on whether that's a significant finding and if so, why that might be? I mean, I think it brings the empirics into line with theory, right? Which is that, like, redlining is this famous phrase built around the the red zones. Red stands out on a map. Like, it's it's more striking, right? Uh, But, like, in theoretical terms, there's very little demand for investment capital in the least desirable neighborhood. So it's unlikely that policy shifts would really change that, right? The yellow zone is where there is some demand for for capital, right? But if you steer people toward it, right, you could have a lot, right? So today, we do the opposite of this, right? So today, like the white part of D.C. or or any city, um, you basically can't build new housing, right? Which doesn't mean you build new housing in the poorest part of the city because people don't want to live there. It means you create this gentrification frontier, like in the yellow zone. And so the 1930s paradigm was the opposite of that. You were like steering investment away from the yellow zone into the white neighborhoods, because at that time, the people in the white neighborhoods wanted presidential investment, which which they generally don't now, right? Um, So it's less, um, it's a little less snappy than like the redlining construct but it's it's like i think what you would say on the basis of abstract principles and and they seem to be showing that that's what what happened right that you have you have steering away from the 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 second to least desirable neighborhoods all right that's the weeds um so thanks alex for joining us and explaining all this um thanks uh, as always to our sponsors and the weeds will be back on friday Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. 
Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.